And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. John Arthur. John Arthur is vice president and executive editor of the Bakersfield Californian, where he supervises the paper's new staff. He came to the Californian in 2010 after more than 35 years of newspaper work in Northern and Southern California at the San Francisco Examiner and the Los Angeles Times, where he was executive editor. Please give a very warm welcome to John Arthur. Thanks for coming, and thanks to Zokolo for uh, putting this event on. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. We've had a chance to meet each other over the last few minutes and be interviewed separately for some rogue web posting. I don't know about that. But uh, I'll start with uh, the person. I want to just give some brief introductions here because this is not a very long discussion. We're going to take some questions, of course. Uh, Paul Hensler, to my immediate left here, you probably know, director CEO of the Kern Medical Center, and has worked in a variety of very interesting jobs up and down California. He's been at the, uh, going back to the early 80s uh, in San Jose at O'Connor Hospital at the USC, USC Dehaney Eye Institute, where he was a CEO. He, he went up to uh, Lake Oswego, we didn't even talk about it, Lake Oswego, Oregon, I've been there. Uh, uh, he worked there. He worked in Lakeport, California, a beautiful little town in Northern California. And he was then um, at UC San Diego, where uh, he was the CEO of the, of the Thornton Hospital in La Jolla, and uh, with Prime Healthcare Management in Victorville. Uh, and the, he was the CEO of the San Diego region. He, then he came in, 19, in 2007 to Kern Medical Center uh, where he's the CEO, and as if you're if you read the paper, or watch the news. Paul is magnetically attracted to almost every controversy, medical controversy, <laughs> in uh, Kern County. So that's it, that's his credentials. Catherine Dower drove down from San Francisco. She's with the UCSF Center for Health Professions. Uh, has been there since 19. 94, to, to research, work on research and policy projects. She co-directs the Health Workforce Tracking Collaborative, which assesses efforts to meet health care workforce challenges, uh, such as shortages and language access. We're going to talk about shortages tonight. Uh, she's been a, uh, a staff to the Pew Health Profession Commissioner. She co-directed the Commission's National Task Force on Healthcare Workforce Regulation. And as you know, the Pew Center really is, does some of the most comprehensive and thoughtful polling and, and assessment in the United States today, I think. Uh, and they're constantly churning out interesting uh, reports on interesting subjects. Uh, her published work targets health profession regulation and women's health. And uh, she's an active speaker around the country. Uh, she is a UC Berkeley graduate and is licensed to practice law in the state of California, so, you know, watch your step. Um, um, and then down at the end, a guy with some actually fairly interesting material on his resume, Jared McNaughton, who's the vice president of marketing and development of uh, San Joaquin Community Hospital here in town. You probably know him. He's also, but this is, this is the part that the rest of us can't claim, he's also owner and president of McNaughton Productions, his own music production and voiceover company, uh, he served as the Administrative Director of Marketing and Development at the Ukiah Valley Medical Center, 
and he was an associate adjunct professor at Pacific Union College in Angwin, California. He's written for the LA Times, the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and he's also, unlike some medical professionals you may know, spoken at the National Broadcasters Association annual, National Association of Broadcasters annual conference. Uh, he's an accomplished musician, having recently performed hits from various Broadway musicals as a lead tenor in Broadway Under the Stars at the world-renowned Fetzer Vineyards. And he held the lead role in best of the, this is the part, and it's not hard to tell, the lead role of the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, you know. Uh, his voiceover talent has been used on numerous commercials, and he and his wife, who's a, a nurse, live in Bakersfield. Paul, have we heard any of your, I mean, Jared, have we heard any of your uh, commercials? Uh, you might have. Uh, well, there, tell me something. Uh, there, could, uh, there could be some stuff for Coca-Cola or some things down in the L.A. news market, so you, you could have had Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to talk about physician shortages, and it's been well documented Bakersfield and Kern County, County have a, a, a slew of medical issues in terms of delivery of care, uh, obesity, uh, poor populations, and so on. And each panelist will speak, and then we'll take some questions. And uh, we might have a little bit of a conversation if we have time. So, Paul, you're on. Oh, thank you, John. Um, let me lead off from a national perspective, and I think that's important. There are some groups... Uh, the American Association of Medical Colleges, for example, that's projecting a shortage of 130,000 physicians by the year 2025, uh, and roughly half of that by 2015, which of course is just around the corner. Uh, there are also some medical economists that are suggesting that there is no U.S. shortage, uh, that uh, if you look at improvements in productivity, improvements in uh, physicians, uh, being relieved of a lot of the regulatory administrative burden, uh, working with mid-levels and so on, uh, that the shortage is not nearly as dire as some would have. Uh, but then moving locally, I don't think there's any doubt that there are significant physician shortages in particularly Kern County and the San Joaquin Valley, and that gets to the maldistribution, that uh, physician manpower is maldistributed <laughs> Uh, between urban areas and rural areas, uh, between the coasts, uh, between areas such as the Northeast, which is a bit of a uh, physician factory with major academic centers there, um, and uh, maldistributed among primary care physicians and specialists, and all that largely dealing with incentives. So uh, San Joaquin Valley, uh, we have a significant problem. Uh, and that will likely get worse. As you, and it's not only a physician shortage, it's a shortage of nurses, shortage of therapists, technicians, just about all of the medical uh, clinical specialists are in and will continue to be in the uh, foreseeable future uh, a shortage, and that's a, a serious issue. Uh, what do we do about it? Uh, part of it is bringing more training uh, to the Valley, uh, and I think that has two effects. One is... Uh, to produce more physicians and nurses and therapists and technicians. Uh, the other is to give opportunities to the bright, hard-working kids we have in the Valley. Uh, one of the issues in physician, particularly recruitment, is retention. And how many physicians, what percent of the residents you train uh, decide to stay in the community where they're trained. And probably the best predictor of that 
is those who went to school or did a residency will be much more likely to stay in the community in which they were raised. In other words, those raised in the San Joaquin Valley are probably more comfortable in returning or staying here. So again, to the degree we can find ways of taking those bright kids from the valley and giving them the educational opportunities and getting them to medical school, bringing medical school here, uh, offering residencies, uh, those are the kids we have the best shot at being the future physicians in the valley. Very good. Well, Catherine is the one person up here not living in Bakersfield, so I'm sure she's going to have an interesting perspective on the situation. Thank you. Yeah, I, I figured that since I drove 300 miles down and 300 miles back, it's a lot of miles in a couple of minutes, and I'm going to talk really quickly to get all of my good points in. Um, I, would, I would echo what's just been said, that you know, what our approach was to look at... Um, shortages. There was some concern even a couple years ago now in California when the ACA was first passed that we would be facing some, some shortages or some concern over um, supply of healthcare workers. So we did a major study, of course, that's what we do at Academic Place. We, we did a big, we bought the data sets from the state of all the licensed professionals and we mapped them out uh, by profession, by county. And so I've got all that data. We have it on our website if anyone's interested. And we all hear the stories um, that some areas of the state are less well supplied with healthcare professionals than others. But it is pretty sobering to flip through the pages or to look online and see profession after profession, some counties, Kern included, um, just always shorter than the others, always less supplied than the other counties. And um, some areas like the Bay Area and LA, constantly well supplied with healthcare professionals. So, so we know that there is a distribution problem, a significant maldistribution problem, I would say, and it's getting worse. For every one doctor who goes into an underserved area now, four doctors go into the already well-served area. So that gap is getting more significant. Um, what we, two things, well, a few things that we don't know. Um, one is that those county, the, even the county mapping masks the Inter, the inner um, areas within that, the sub-areas within that. So even in San Francisco, um, which has so many doctors that you can't walk down the street sometime without tripping over one of them, you can't get a, an appointment sometimes for some of the um, specialties, or if you have, happen to have a particular health insurance plan, or if you're in Medicare. My grandmother, when she had melanoma, couldn't get a dermatologist because she was on Medicare HMO. So there are challenges even within those well-supplied areas, which is a interesting and a, and a challenge for policymakers and others to, to grapple with. The other thing that we don't know is demand. We actually don't know how many people we need. Um, all of the calculations that have been done to date have been based on historical data, ratios of doctors or nurses or whoever, to population. And with the new practice models, including telemedicine, telehealth, new teams of people, we actually don't know how many pr practitioners we're going to need. And we also have changing demographics, so the population, the patients are changing in terms of what they need, their chronic conditions are changing, we're all living longer, so we need people who understand geriatrics more. Um, so there's a lot that's still unknown about demand. Um, some of the things that I'm most interested right now in is... Uh, not, not focusing so much on figuring out a new formula for exactly how many doctors or nurses per population we need, but looking at these new practice models that are working. So looking at new, particularly around primary care, which we think is going to be the first area to feel the burden of the, uh, this uh, influx of people starting in 2014. Three million people newly insured in California are the estimates. So everybody's going to be facing delays, probably, all the people who are newly insured as well as the people who already have insurance. Um, so primary care is going to be hit 
hardest first. So we're looking at models around the country where they're using people a little bit differently. They're using nurse practitioners and PAs more extensively. They've got teams where we've got medical assistants doing a lot of the work that uh, traditionally had been done by a doctor or a nurse or somebody else on staff. I was actually at a site in Maryland a while back, and they had a list of 40. Plus things that could be done in a primary care office, and they were passing it around to the doctors and the other people on staff and asking them how many things that they did in the past couple of weeks off of that list. The doctors were checking every single one of the things on that list, everything from diagnosing and prescribing on down to checking the fax machine and making phone calls for the for the prescription refills, and only five of the things were legally. Only authorized to a physician, so the other 30 plus things could have been done by other people on the staff. So it's an eye-opening exercise for everybody on staff, and, and so we're seeing a lot of uh, models like that, where people are moving to these new practices, new teams, where they're getting good outcomes, good quality care, using a different structure. And then the use of telemedicine or telehealth is also um, very exciting. Um, I was struck when I visited a site in um, High Plains, Colorado, clinic out in the middle of nowhere. It's Really rural. It's three miles. I mean, excuse me, three hours by car out of Denver. If your rental car doesn't break down on the highway, a little bit longer if it does. And I went in very biased. I live in the Bay Area. I half my family's in high tech and uh, computer stuff, and so I didn't expect to see a completely paperless practice. Um, they, everybody there had tablets and little walkie-talkies and phones. Uh, there wasn't a single paper record anywhere in sight, and they were delivering really high-quality care, um, using two or three medical assistants for every practitioner. And the practitioners were PAs and NPs and, and doctors because they couldn't get, they could not get enough doctors in that area. Or nurses, so terrific model, great outcomes, and very financially sustainable. So I think that we're looking for these good practice models that think where they're changing things up a little bit um, to deliver good quality care that is uh, um, financially doable and accessible to a, a large number of people. And then the other thing that I hope we'll talk about tonight is also um, diversity in the health professions, and that's a major problem in California. Our health professions don't look like the general population, and uh, we continue to. It, it's just not getting much better in, in medicine and in nursing. It's just incrementally getting better. So we've got a, a lot of work to do in that area. It's getting a little bit better with, with gender. The story that I like to tell is my uh, when my daughter was three, we came out of her doctor's appointment, and by no design of mine, um, she said, "Mommy, can boys be doctors too?" <laughs> so we have come a few a long way in, in some areas, but we uh, I think it's still a few years down the road before someone asks their mom if uh, white people can become doctors too. So I think we need to move towards that direction. Uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll stop there for now. Look forward to Great. the questions. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Jared. Well, it's a pleasure to be uh, here with you folks tonight, and thanks to the Zocalo team for having us. This is an interesting discussion. Uh, yeah, from our perspective at San Joaquin Hospital, we're uh, definitely in a recruitment mode. Uh, we're, we're building right now a new cancer center. Uh, many new services are coming on, and so we are uh, full bore into physician recruitment. And I was just chatting with Catherine in the back and uh, sharing with her briefly our physician need report. She mentioned that there are these documents that uh, hospitals and other programs and clinics uh, do as far as 
looking at the total need for a population. And uh, we complete one of those every other year. And uh, just looking over that uh, shows, for instance, in our market that we're about 90 physicians behind on just the primary care market, both family practice and internal medicine. And we've seen some interesting trends uh, during our recruitment efforts so that include things like an employment uh, versus private practice option uh, for most of the new recruits that are coming out of uh, residency programs. A majority of them really don't have a desire for that entrepreneurship, if you will, that some of the uh, seasoned physicians have. They're looking for an employed model uh, so that they can come out and be an employee of a clinic or a hospital. And as folks might know, uh, California is a very interesting state in the union because uh, we, are not, we are not allowed as a hospital to employ physicians directly. And so in order to do that, you have to create these medical foundations uh, and do a whole uh, rigmarole of uh, legality, uh, legalities uh, to be able to employ physicians legally in this state. It's very cumbersome. Uh, it would be something that I would love to see addressed uh, in some of our other states. Most of the other states in the union are already have. So that's one issue, the employed versus the private practice piece that we're seeing a big trend uh, change. The other issue that uh, we were talking about in the back, and I think actually Paul had brought this up, and we look at this a lot, is what we call total market spend. Uh, that's where you're looking at all of the available healthcare dollars in the market and tr trying to figure out where are those going. Now, when you look at the out-migration patterns of people having to leave this community for specialty care or for primary care, a lot of those uh, total market dollars are actually leaving our county and going to the south or over to the coast. Uh, for us, we believe that there's a huge opportunity if we can keep those dollars here, uh, not only for the uh, pure economics and, and tax base, but also just for the overall health of the community. And that's why we believe uh, very strongly that recruitment, uh, strong recruitment needs to happen and, and is happening here. Uh, Bakersfield's a phenomenal community. I was born and raised here. I, I think there are some wonderful attributes to this community. Uh, that we, we do tend to get a little bit of a bad rap out there. I think most of that is because of our own doing, to be honest with you. Uh, but it's a phenomenal community that really does sell itself once people get here. Uh, the third area for me that uh, we're, we're noticing a big trend change is really uh, on the, the business uh, side of, of hospital management, where we see more physicians being dragged into um, hospital administration. Uh, so some people think that's great. I happen to think it's wonderful. Some people think it's not so great. But when you do that, of course, you uh, lower the total number of, of physician hours, if you will, that are being spent with uh, frontline patients. You have that issue going on on the administrative side, but you also have a, a very interesting issue happening uh, with what we call hospitalists, where we're actually taking internal medicine physicians most of the time, pulling them out of private practice and placing them into the hospital to care for patients. Now, some people argue that that's a phenomenal model and it's good. Some people don't think it's as, as great. But regardless of whether or not you think it's a good or bad model, the reality is, is that people are leaving their private practices uh, or coming out of residency into a hospitalist model, which then depletes the total number of physicians available to see patients out in the community. So when you take those three issues, uh, just, I know there a lot more, but for us, those are kind of the three top issues that we're, we're taking a look at and trying to make sure that we invest heavily in recruitment. Uh, and I, I'm proud to say uh, for our cancer center, for instance, uh, three out of the four 
uh, positions on, on the medical side, medical physician side that we need are filled, uh, and we're excited to have these new folks come to our community and to our area, and uh, we're, we're still looking for one more, but uh, things are progressing uh, very good for us on that front. But I can tell you, as I was sharing with the panel, that for every 25 or 30 physicians that we vet through a recruiting process, you might get one good lead. Uh, so it's very time intensive, uh, extremely intense on the staff of vetting their uh, uh, different CVs, looking on the medical board, making sure everything's spick and span. And so uh, it, is a, it is a labor intensive endeavor. But uh, as I said, I think Bakersfield's a phenomenal community and we have some wonderful physicians here and, and it really does sell itself once people get into the community. It's a, it's a phenomenal place. So, You know, I'm just gonna go off script here for one second. With a sh I have three questions with a sh for a show of hands. One is, how many people are here are in the medical profession or working, working or students or something like that? Okay, a group. How many people are here because they define themselves as patients? Only that many patients? That's not very many. How many people have either themselves or had a very close relative go to Los Angeles for some kind of specialized treatment that they couldn't get here. Okay, well, that's, that's the biggest group we have, actually. Um, Paul, are, are there, are there um, as far as you go in recruiting, and we've talked about some initiatives you've, uh, I mean, we talked in back about your, some of your initiatives with the Ross School in the Caribbean, but uh, I think what, I, what I've heard here and inside was that if you if local people can be attracted if central valley natives can be attracted to the medical profession here they, there's a higher chance that they will end up practicing here not not everybody will and, and have you had what's what's your take on that on that area and how you recruit get people to to, to who you had some interesting ideas i thought about mm -hmm. medical training and how uh, you know, schooling in Bakersfield or I guess Merced or any place else, but where, where we could attract people to become doctors and stay in, in the Central Valley. Yeah, uh, one of the things we've done the past few years uh, in conjunction with our partners at the UCLA School of Medicine, Cal State, Community College District, and the high schools is we have the high schools from throughout the country bring their brightest kids to the Dore Auditorium for a day. And these kids come from everywhere, even Ridgecrest uh, sends in kids. This year we had almost 600 of the brightest high school kids. And we have some of our physicians and nurses and others talk to them about what's it like to be a physician, how do you get there? And with a lot of our kids, uh, because of the limitations or the perceived limitations, they don't see themselves as being able to do it. But you know, I know physicians in Bakersfield who are the adult children of migrant farmers. And I don't know how tough it has been for some of you to get an education, but I can't think of a tougher way. And yet they find a way and they get into medical school and they're very likely to return here. Uh, so one is that gives us each year an audience of five or 600 high school students. And that's where you need to begin. Uh, they need to be aware of the health professions and they need to understand that with hard work and reasonable intelligence, there are many avenues for them to get there. Uh, that financing shouldn't be one of the major concerns. Uh, it's the desire to do it. And uh, in the three years we've been doing it, uh, you know, we're starting to see kids 
that uh, that turned it around. And I think that that's part of where we need to start. I mean, that's the more long-term thing. These are the people who can be physicians in 10 and 15 years. But uh, I think that's where it needs to begin. Uh, I think education is just, growing education in the community is just a very important component for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is for our own population. Two is it's a good, clean industry that brings a lot of very bright people. Uh, I happen to grow up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which happens to be the same population as Bakersfield. And Pittsburgh has grown and has actually had housing prices increase during the recession on the backs of three industries, healthcare, education, and technology. And uh, you know, those are the kind of opportunities I think we need to look for. Uh, expanding the health sciences or creating a health sciences magnet program at Cal State that would attract uh, those interested even to the point that the first couple years that adaptive portions of medical school could be done there with transfers. Uh, the work we're doing with Ross will graduate uh, 96 medical students a year and we're going to heavily recruit from the valley and have 10 scholarships a year available. Uh, I think our long-term solution is in our own children, uh, of showing them that there are pathways to them. Uh, and I think that that's also the pathway for the growth and development of Bakersfield. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the difficulties in recruiting uh, physicians here is physicians tend to like more of a cosmopolitan lifestyle. Uh, they like the arts, uh, the theater, uh, educational opportunities, uh, and educational opportunities for the children. And that's part of the infrastructure we need to develop, but that also is something that would just be very good for this community. Very interesting. Catherine, in, in, your anecdotes from your travels were really fascinating, Maryland and Colorado, and even in San Francisco, where there are underserved parts of yeah. San Francisco or the Bay Area. Have your travels taken you to a place like Bakersfield, which is a pretty fair-sized city, but having a, what's the word, mal Distribution, Maldistribution. Maldistribution issues. Have you seen other areas in the country like this? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there are a number of areas like this around the country, and uh, and and worse in the sense that you know some areas are extremely rural and underserved. Um, I think that the the way that people are getting are solving the problem is by coming up with creative solutions, such as using you know telehealth. So the the place in Denver, they were, I mean, excuse, place in High Plains, they were doing their consults uh, with a specialist in Denver, and they had a, a room dedicated in the clinic with all of the bio hookups and, uh, and the video conferencing so they could very quickly do a consult right then and there. I mean, faster than I can do a specialty, you know, appointment if I get from my primary care doctor to the specialty doctor in San Francisco. Um, they were doing it faster there. Mm -hmm. So using something like that, or out in um, West Virginia, where they were using the medical assistance to do the home visits for the frail elderly who couldn't get into the clinic often enough. So I think people are coming up with creative solutions. Um, and, but I think that, yes, there are other places around that are similarly situated. Um, and hopefully that we can find some, some models that excuse me, will translate here. I wanna, we still have a few minutes before I'm told to go to questions. Jared. What about this issue that Catherine brought up about the diversity in the medical profession and the ability to attract diverse candidates? Uh, you're heavily involved in recruiting. I assume that's on your radar. I don't know what you can do about it. And what are some of your experiences in efforts to attract 
non-white doctors, shall we say. Yeah, we just had a, a candidate here yesterday uh, looking at, uh, at the community and at the hospital, a uh, medical oncology candidate, and uh, we, were, we were just overjoyed that he is a fluent Spanish speaker because, as you know, mm -hmm. the Hispanic population is quite large here in our community. It's, it's a major uh, community need to have Spanish-speaking uh, caregivers, uh, nurses, phlebotomists, physicians, whatever that might be. And so uh, we certainly do uh, request that. But the problem is uh, in, in, in a market that is so constrained for physicians, it can be very difficult to demand it. So it's one thing to hope for it and to, uh, to ask folks if, if, they, if they do and hope that they do. It's a whole other thing to make that a prerequisite and say you have to do that uh, or have to have that skill. Right. So uh, for us, it's something that we definitely look for. It's on our radar screen. It's one of the top things. Uh, it's even on uh, uh, several of our forms that we, uh, we have when we're going through a candidate selection. But for us, it's something that unfortunately isn't as prevalent as we'd like to see it here. So why don't we, uh, we've sort of been on one track up here. I don't know if this is exactly what's on your mind. Uh, there may be other things or there may be thoughts you have based on what's been said here. Do people have questions about some of these issues uh, or personal experiences about the delivery of health care? I'm Denise Dawkins. I'm an a educator and an RN at Cal State Bakersfield. When you talk about recruitment, I would like to see you go to middle schools because what happens to these children is they um, don't, are not successful because they don't know the skills. They should be taking math and science in middle school. So I'd like to see some more recruitment. And I would like to see, um, you know, we actually closed our nurse practitioner program. And I think that's really hurt the community. So I'd like to see what we could do about that, too. Another question over here. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Victor Ettinger. Can I hold this? <laughs> I can't hold <laughs> Okay. I'm Victor Ettinger. I'm the former chief of endocrinology at Kern Medical Center until recently. And I was wondering... Uh, of Mr. Hensler, uh, how he can uh, put together um, the need that we have in Bakersfield of more primary care physicians and the fact that he tried to close the family practice program, which is one of the prime sources of primary care physicians. Well, one, uh, it's not true that I tried to close the family practice residency program. Uh, the chairman of the department brought up the issue that there was a lot we needed to do with the department and should we skip one year of taking in residence. Uh, since that time, we have brought in a consultant who's well known and by the Academy of Family Practice uh, who is looking for community solutions to it. Uh, the problem is uh, how little support we get for our residency programs. And that's another maldistribution issue. Uh, hospitals in the Northeast uh, get uh, as much as 200000 sometimes more than $200,000 per resident per year. KMC gets $17,000. Uh, it cost us roughly two hundred to 250000 per resident uh, beyond the amount we, the stipends we get and the revenues they generate. So each of the departments to be successful has got to find ways of being as productive as possible uh, what we're looking for in the long-term uh, salvation of that particular program uh, is more of a collaborative community-based program. Uh, we'll continue the program until we can do that. Uh, the FQHCs are very interested. 
and family practice in particular, which is more of an outpatient than hospital-based residency, uh, those are where the volumes of patients are, which is part of what you need for a good, re a solid residency program. So it's not true we're trying to close it. The truth is we're trying to improve it and make it a long-lasting uh, program. And my name is Michelle Henry, and I'm a grad student and also an efficient, strategic efficiency consultant here in Kern County. Um, I've worked for members of Congress and for the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, and so I uh, represent the people, and I hear a lot of you know, what you want to grow and, and things that you want to do and ideas that you have, but I don't hear a lot about prevention and a lot of the you know, diseases that affect Kern County are type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, and things that could be prevented, and they don't necessarily have to see a physician for that, but maybe a nutritionist, you know, a nutritionist or something. So what are your plans for that? That is what we're looking at in addition to the things I talked about, these innovative models where they're using um, nutritionists, community health workers, promotoras, um, uh, behavioral health specialists, a number of different people on the team to help prevent disease and, and conditions and also to manage long-term diseases and conditions. So absolutely, I mean, I think there's a number, and I think we haven't, this gets back to my, my point about we don't know demand yet, we don't really know need because as people are using, they're doing more self-care um, in some places, more group care, um, more home-based care, and all of those things are slightly different, and we actually don't know models, we don't have models for how many workers we need to meet those sort of that sort of need. So it's changing, so we don't really know the numbers, but we are supporting and exploring all of those models, because absolutely, we've got, the changing demographics are, are pretty significant in terms of chronic disease burden. It's not an acute care system like we had 20 years ago, or, or even more recently. It's really shifting fairly quickly, and so uh, I think that there is a, a lot of need for all the health professions and a number of groups that some people wouldn't call professions, but are healthcare workers. I mean, we, we do include promotoras and community health workers in our work, because I think that's really important. Jared, uh, what, what, uh, is prevention a growing area at San Joaquin, or how would you do, how would you? Well, it's, it's a fascinating question, because unfortunately, the United States healthcare system has been set up on uh, uh, reimbursement models mm -hmm. that the more you test, uh, the more that you uh, run diagnostics on patients, that's where the payment is. And so the, the, uh, the, the method, if you will, for the madness has been reversed from what it really should be. And uh, some of us are hopeful that with some of the new things coming through, uh, both on the federal and state level, that that will change. We're already seeing some changes for uh, hospital-based readmi readmission rates and, and those kinds of things for us to get much more involved and uh, really care, if you will, about making sure patients don't come back to us uh, for care right away. Uh, but uh, again, uh, the unfortunate thing is that the system was created for the outcome that it got. Uh, and, and when you look at how the healthcare system was created in this in this country, it was really created on the reimbursement side around uh, around tests and, and those kinds of things, procedures, uh, surgeries, and those kinds of things, instead of a wellness component necessarily. Now that's starting to shift. Now we're seeing that reimbursement model shift just a bit, but uh, uh, unfortunately, that's the way that it was. So, hi, I'm uh, Jeff Pickering. I'm president and CEO of Kern Community Foundation. Uh, hi, everybody. I think I know almost everyone on this on the panel. Um, this community, I think we take in somewhere close to $300 million in charitable contributions each year to nonprofit organizations. A good amount of them go beyond religious organizations to healthcare institutions in our community. And we've seen of note, uh, you know, a significant contribution for the naming of the Cancer Center, significant contribution by the Small Family last year to Bakersfield Memorial Hospital, you know, all the way on down to 
uh, smaller kind of capital investments for things like healing gardens out at um, uh, Friends of Mer or through the Friends of Mercy Foundation. What conversations are you having or are you knowledgeable about of um, the need for philanthropists to take a role in providing academic medical education um, and recruitment and retention and those types of issues to address this, I would think, equally important issue as compared to the capital projects that we have in our community. KMC established a foundation a couple years ago. Uh, we really haven't uh, uh, promoted a lot, actually. One of Ross's contributions uh, is some seed money for it. Uh, the bigger question of philanthropy in education and medicine, uh, the, the solid institutions have all be, risen from solid philanthropy behind them. Uh, the numbers I was throwing out of how little government support we get for graduate medical education and how expensive it is, uh, is a pretty strong indication that at some point uh, donations are going to have to make up that gap. Um, and it's not just to KMC, it's to the educational community. I think Cal State, uh, Bakersfield, for example, uh, the idea of developing a uh, health sciences uh, almost magnet among the systems uh, for this location would be donations that would pay themselves back many, many times. But medical education is very expensive compared to a history department or an English department where you have large lectures. Uh, laboratories, a much higher uh, ratio of instructors. Uh, it's, it's very difficult, particularly for the state-sponsored schools, to be able to justify that. And about the only way they can justify it, again, is for philanthropy. So I think that that is a piece of the puzzle that if Bakersfield is going to put together significant uh, education, uh, and particularly in the health sciences, is going to have to come from, from uh, some very generous donors. I would add that right now, much of the, I'd say the vast majority of research on um, workforce issues is being done by philanthropic foundations. A lot of our work is funded by small and medium-sized foundations, and it's, it's really critical because it's not being done by any other um, unbiased entities, I would say. Um, so that's important. And I, but I think that there's a there needs to be a line. A number of the foundations also were funding these one-off experiments for um, short-term, like, like using community health workers or promotors, for example, in a community clinic to see what they could do. And it's terrific to, to demonstrate, but then you need to find a way to spread those good ideas. And the, the one-off funding of a program without having the financial system for long-term implementation, uh, it doesn't work. So, so we need to help, help find ways to change the financing system, I agree, because a lot of those programs now, they, they go for one or two years and then they get cut off and uh, they, don't, they don't exist any longer unless you can find a way to spread. But the foundations are, are playing and continue to play an important role in researching and piloting some of these ideas and helping to find ways to get leaders to understand them and adapt, adopt them if they can. And I would just add, Jeff, uh, I, I know you know this, but philanthropic support for uh, hospitals uh, continues to be a, a major, major uh, a positive force, uh, not only in getting the community to feel ownership of the institution, but also to create services and programs that otherwise would not exist. And in our market, it was a very clear indicator 
uh, for the Grossman Burn Center. Uh, this, that burn center would not have uh, existed today if it wasn't for uh, philanthropic uh, supporters who completely funded that entire program. Uh, so the, the, there are those uh, things that are out there. I know uh, Supervisor Go being here, she is working with the California Endowment, from what I understand, on, on an initiative for a healthy south uh, Kern area. And there, there are other things like that that are happening. But philanthropic support is absolutely vital uh, to keep those kinds of things, especially as we see decreasing margins on the, on the hospital side. Uh, it becomes much more difficult to open and create new service lines and programs. My name is Bob Kretzmer. And my question is, if I understand correctly, the Affordable Health Care Act does have provisions in it that helps address physician shortage issues primarily uh, involving primary care physicians. What impact do you think enactment of the Affordable Health Care Act may have in our community in addressing those physician shortages? One of the provisions has to do with uh, particularly uh, and I, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, residencies in primary care mm -hmm. that are based in community clinics right. rather than hospitals. And uh, Clinica has applied and apparently has been successful in Fresno, and we're looking at doing the same thing down here. Uh, that sponsors um, residencies at about $125,000 per year uh, per resident, uh, which makes it much more financially viable to do. Uh, the rules are still being written. The initial uh, uh, grants were let go last year, uh, but there's uncertainty on whether they're going to be funded and whether there'll be additional ones available. Uh, so right now, there's a lot of hope. Um, but really, with the magnitude of the Affordable Care Act, there hasn't been anywhere near that magnitude of attention to the training of health professionals. Uh, the one other piece that's in there is um, some support for nurse-managed clinics, which mm -hmm. is um, another alternative to delivery of care. Great marks, good quality marks, um, alternative to the traditional medical model. Um, but it's nowhere, I agree, nowhere near the support that is needed for the number of newly insured. Uh, we talked about earlier about prevention and treatment and what we were doing in the community or what we were doing even in California. And um, at the San Joaquin, they have a wonderful American Diabetes Association recognized diabetes program. And over 10 years ago, it was our congressman who added that to the Balanced Budget Act mm -hmm. to make sure that Medicare covered for diabetes self-management training. And I know Dr. Ettinger will definitely vouch for the fact that it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Medicare patients have coverage for diabetes education, and they have a separate benefit for nutrition therapy with the dietitian. And quite often, one of the problems we have in healthcare, we communicate poorly. <laughs> we don't talk to each other very well. We can't communicate what we just did to someone and explain to them how much the bill will be. We have very little transparency. Mm -hmm. I have personal experience at two local hospitals within the last four, eight weeks. I can tell you about both billing systems. I can tell you about what a hospitalist is and what they're not. I can tell you what a primary care doctor is and what they're not. I can tell you wonderful emergency room care that I received. And I can tell you, what was this guy doing in our room? So I think we all have all of these issues with health care. And part of it is that communication piece. 
we need to use the tweeting, the Twittering, whatever. We need to use YouTube. We need to use the television. We need to complete, explain to people what health literacy is, how to take care of themselves, but how to use what they have. Most of us in this room have no clue what that plastic card in our wallet does for us. It's very valuable, but we don't know how to use it. We need to find a way to communicate better. So. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's actually a great article, if, if uh, folks haven't seen it, it was in the New York Post by Twal Gwandi called Big Net. <clears throat> Uh, and a very interesting piece about communication in healthcare, uh, comparing healthcare uh, to uh, the Cheesecake Factory of all places, uh, which was very interesting, uh, but just how the process uh, is in place uh, for, for things in other industries that don't exist in healthcare. And generally, when you look at things uh, like the Lean Six Sigma method of process and those kinds of things that other industries have impl implemented years and years ago, healthcare is uh, pretty behind the curve on a lot of those things. And so it's, it's a very valid point, a uh, very valid point. It's a great article. I'd highly recommend folks take a look at it. I'd agree. We're working on a number of programs to encourage interprofessional collaboration and communication because between and among the professions, we're seeing breakdowns. And that's often a cause of uh, and you end up, not a cause of, yeah, you end up with uh, bad results, bad outcomes for patients because of that lack of communication uh, between and among the professions, um, in addition to between uh, professionals and the, and the patients themselves. So that's a, an area that we continue to work on. And I would, I would just add to your point about the um, uh, overall issue, the productivity of the healthcare field is, has gone down over 20 years. I mean, that was the Georgetown study that just came out. So compared to, there's, 14 or so other sectors in the United States economy that the productivity increased significantly. And the healthcare sector actually went down, which is very disturbing. So we're spending a lot of money to train um, doctors in particular. Uh, it's a very costly endeavor. But overall, we're spending a lot of money and uh, we're, we're getting lower productivity, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a big mm -hmm. worry. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Kiyoki. I'm a family physician and I work closely with the Academy of Family Medicine. And, and with the uh, family medicine residency in town. And um, just our comment and the one before made me remember that our daily work as physicians is to help inspire change mm -hmm. and to help maintain and support changes through health. And as physicians, we really ought to start taking that to heart. And we need to start um, building capacity among the physicians that are already in town we need to be up on that stage talking and sharing about what we're doing to help all of you. Uh, you need to be careful about how you measure productivity. I have not met one patient who wants to be measured in that way. Everyone deserves the full time with their physician and no one wants a physician who's being measured with their productivity. I haven't met any patient who wants that. Um, but I want to know um, what we can all do to help change the GME funding system. So the Academy of Family Physicians is working on the federal level to change the way that the Medicare GME funding is calculated. Why is it that Kern County gets $17,000 a year to fund a resident where Palm Springs gets $200,000 a year? That's not right. So your congressman needs to know that this is affecting your life and your health. On the state level, Senator Rubio wants to know that this is affecting your state, your health, and your community. He introduced a bill last session, which was killed in committee because we have no money, to start a California-based fund to fund residency maldistributions to make up the gap that the federal government cannot make up. 
we can start our own state fund if we have support, but Senator Rubio and your representative in this assembly needs to know that this is important to you, that it's affecting your community. Good evening, Javier Reyes Jr. What excellent timing, doctor. Um, I'm the field representative for your state assemblywoman, Shannon Grove, and in her opinion, uh, tort reform is the best approach to increase the supply of doctors in our medical community. But my initial question was, I'm also the brother to a med student that will be entering in the fall of 2013. She is concerned with the Affordable Health Care Act looming, that it has taken away a lot of the incentives uh, why she wanted to become a doctor. What can you share tonight in your professional insight that I can share with my sister why she should not be as concerned? <laughs> well, I, I would say it's a terrific time to be going into medicine if you want to be taking care of patients. We have a, we have a terrific opportunity to improve care, to make better care, to give um, appropriate care to a number of different uh, populations in this country. So I think it's a great opportunity. It's going to be, it's hard work. It's not going to be super easy, but I don't see why the ACA would, would mitigate that at all. I think it's a, it's a terrific time. It's a lot, a lot of opportunity. I think a lot of it has to do with how we, and particularly young doctors and other health professionals, uh, view it and where they go with it. Uh, obviously, the system as it is is not working well for many people and is on a trajectory that's just totally unaffordable. So it has to change. And the decisions are, how is it going to go about changing? Uh, the Affordable Care Act's a couple thousand pages. By the time CMS gets done with the regulations that come out of that, it'll probably be in the tens of thousands of pages. So there's still a lot of opportunity to, to influence that. Um, you know, the, the earlier remark of productivity, uh, when I was referring to productivity, it wasn't just churn out more patients per hour. It's viewing how we even approach the system. Uh, as Kathleen yes. said, um, uh, out of 15, I believe it was tasks, only two really required a physician. So how do you relieve physicians of that and have them doing what they're trained for? So it could, it's change, and whether that's an opportunity uh, for more rewarding careers or whether it's going to become more difficult and uh, federally industrialized is going to have a lot to do with how this generation of healthcare workers uh, implements it. And, you know, it's always important to have perspective on these kinds of things. Uh, uh, for, for years and years and years, as long as any of us can remember, uh, that the communities that we serve need physicians and need hospitals. That change will, uh, that there will be no change to that. Uh, hospitals and physicians are going to be greatly needed in the future. It's just uh, figuring out how to, uh, to adjust and to change and adapt to the new environment. Uh, so uh, it's, for me, not a doomsday prediction at all by any means. Uh, I, I think it's just adapting to that change. And you will see, uh, find some providers that already have happens today, they're saying, you know, I think I'm, I'm to the point where I really don't want to deal with that change, whether it's something like the Affordable Care Act or electronic medical record or whatever it might be, and they're saying, you know, I think it's time for me to, to retire and move on while you have other folks that are coming right out of residency who can't wait to get their hands on a computer mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and do all of the order entry and all that kind of stuff. So some of it's generational, uh, some of it is adapting to the change, but the good thing is, is that there's always going to be a need, and it's really uh, up to all of us to figure out how to, to best meet that. I'm uh, Dr. William Bezdek. I'm a cardiologist in this town, practiced for 37 years. I came here in 1975. I was the first board-certified uh, cardiologist in the valley. 
or in this, uh, I should say, in uh, Bakersfield. And I retired September 30th of this year. Over that period of time, I've seen medicine change from what was basically a, a cottage-type industry model uh, with the doctor, his nurses, his office, and his patients uh, taking care of people into one that's more of an industrialized-type uh, uh, practice where there's a tremendous support system, uh, more and more gadgets you have to interact with, uh, more hospital administrators, uh, uh, more uh, forms you have to worry about, uh, getting properly filled out and all the dots properly uh, f uh, filed, which uh, to me, by the time I retired, I felt that I had changed from a physician to a uh, basically a um, data input technician uh, for it. Um, and it raises, uh, in addition, uh, you know, I tried to sell my practice when I retired and was totally unable to. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason for that is that young doctors coming out of training are just carrying too much debt. Uh, they're up to their eyeballs in debt. It takes you, from the time you see a patient to the time you get an income from that patient, anywhere from three to four months, okay? These guys with a big debt, they can't take that uh, three or four month period. When I went out in practice, uh, you know, banks were shoving money on me. I had to fight them off or I'd get in trouble if I didn't. Now the banks won't loan to doctors, okay? You know, you're no longer a good risk uh, for it. So a lot of people can't start the practice. In addition, I think there is a computer healthcare industry uh, uh, um, conspiracy going on. Uh, I had to change my basic hardware about every eight years, usually at a cost between twelve and $20,000. That, that's a big bite. And sometimes you had to change it just because the government changed the damn form, okay? And, and they wouldn't support your old hardware with some uh, fix for the new uh, uh, software. Uh, so they had you basically by the cojones, uh, and you had to pay out the money, okay? So, you know, if you're talking about changing the healthcare system and getting more people in, uh, maybe I'm one of the old crotchety ones that uh, Gerard's talking about, you know, who, uh, I like computers. Uh, I just don't like having to put data into my computer when I'm trying to talk to the patient. It gets in my way. If you look at San Joaquin Hospital's uh, ER forms, you get five pages and you can't figure out why the hell the patient was there. Mm. You know, you get these computer forms, they generate all kinds of garbage. The, the, the question, it's not a question, it's a really a, more of a um, uh, recommendation. You have to improve financing. There's no question about that. Right now, doctors can't start off. They've got to join an HMO. They've got to be employed by a hospital. You have to improve financing. You have to find some way to reduce the cost of the, of the IT that the doctor's uh, putting out. I don't know if you want to go to a cloud system where you can put it in and the state pays for the cloud and, and you can uh, put your data in without uh, having to uh, worry about it. Uh, and you have to be able to make it more doctor-patient friendly so that you can actually talk to your patient and not worry about crossing the T's and getting the data in. Those would be my recommendations. Great, great comments. Uh, doc, Dr. Bezdek and I pass each other, uh, or we did before you retired, uh, several, several times a day sometimes on the campus, and uh, he brings up some great points. And uh, I can tell you that there's no question that things like an electronic medical record can be cumbersome, they can be difficult to, to navigate, uh, and uh, I think all of the hospital systems in, in the United States are trying to figure out better ways to do that. It certainly does 
uh, inhibit some of the patient interaction, patient and physician interaction. You find some hospitals actually bringing in scribes mm -hmm. for just that reason to try to get around that divide that uh, is, is caused. Uh, but I, I can also tell you that the benefits uh, are, are very, very strong because if some folks have ever tried to read a, uh, a physician uh, note or a, a clinical note from a nurse or a pharmacist or anybody in the hospital, my handwriting, it's uh, very difficult to read. And uh, when you're up on a floor and you are hearing staff members trying to guess what this says, uh, there's a problem. And, uh, and that, that doesn't always exist, but it does more than it doesn't. And so there are pros and cons. There's no question uh, to that. And, and it's just trying to figure out how to adapt to that and make it better. So I certainly appreciate Dr. Bezdek's comment. But I think some of your comments go right to the heart of the problem and the hopeful improvement of productivity that physicians have been taking large amounts of their time out of mm -hmm. clinical care and direct patient care and got into a whole bureaucratic mess. Uh, you know, not only do we find inefficient ways of doing things, we then uh, promulgate regulation that puts it all in concrete. And uh, a lot of the government agencies that complain the loudest about the cost are the ones that continually bombard us with these regulations uh, you know, the electronic medical records essentially been mandated. Mm -hmm. um, I, one of the possibly positive things coming out of Affordable Care Act and just the general trend is more of the risk uh, is going to be with the providers rather than the insurance companies. And while that's a negative thing in terms of having to take on the risk, it could be positive in that if you have the money on a capitated basis, mm -hmm. The, the providers can start making the decisions about what's the most efficient way of providing care, and is it more efficient to spend, some, spend money on prevention than on procedures? How do you keep a population healthy? And uh, that may be one of the opportunities that comes out of this. My name is Rich O'Neill. Um, I want to kind of change the area of comments a little bit here. And uh, first, just a little background. I'm a native of Bakersfield. Um, recently retired pharmacist, practiced here for 33 years. I have two doctors in the family. Uh, one of them was trained here from grammar school through Kern Medical Center residency. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I say I'm a native because some people may not like this comment, but um, there I'd like to touch upon is that I really feel that Bakersfield is not very aesthetically pleasing, somewhat ugly. <laughs> and, and also that it's um, unhealthy, unhealthy. Um, and I've worked for uh, not only pharmacy, but in, in community organizations trying to make Bakersfield a little better place to live, improve our quality of life. A um, couple of examples is Bakersfield is not a walkable community. We're removing sidewalks. We're not building sufficient sidewalks in, and the zoning that keeps that movement and health going. Okay. Um, we have a dry riverbed. Our trees are dying. They're cutting down trees faster than we could plant them. And I'm on the tree foundation of Kern. My, my question to you is, can you comment a little bit about during your recruitment practices, 
how how do you um, how do you uh, value the the um, the likelihood that a family is going to move here and want to stay, considering our unhealthiness and lack of aesthetics? How does that affect recruitment? I can't tell you how many times we've had a physician very interested in the the uh, career potential mm -hmm. and the, saw this as an exciting place to practice. And then we get the call, well, the spouse was doing uh, uh, Googled and found out about uh, air quality, found out about valley fever, uh, et cetera. And some of these things I think are even cyclical. Uh, when you don't have adequate sidewalks, when you don't have bike lanes, when you don't have attractive parks, uh, that also affects the health status of the population. So they don't walk as much, it affects their health status. So I, I think those things are critical. The environment is critical, uh, A, to a healthy population, and B, to be able to recruit uh, the professionals we need to bring in. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with what Jared talked about earlier, is the out-migration for healthcare. Uh, you can also think of it as a business that generates a lot of jobs. Uh, we talked to some of our colleagues at UCLA School of Medicine, uh, specialists there that, oh, you're from Bakersfield, you know, I get a third of my practice from there. Mm -hmm. Well, if we were able to retain those patients here, it's not only more convenient, it also mean, creates a lot of jobs and keeps a lot of revenue in the community. And that in turn helps with the aesthetics and the uh, the things that you're talking about that make it a healthier community. So I really think these are all interconnected and very important. Hi, my name is Carl Davison, and um, I, well, I was going to give a couple, couple quick facts. 20% of the population of this community has, does not have a high school diploma. 20%. Um, my actual question is, what, what does the panel think will happen or how will it help this community if UC Riverside gets a uh, medical school as has been proposed several times, having been a graduate student there? I think it can help us somewhat. We're already in discussions with them of doing some of their rotations here. Uh, that would introduce some uh, students from there that might possibly long-term uh, stay in the community. It also opens up some uh, third and four-year slots at Westwood with UCLA. Uh, so that has some potential, uh, but uh, I think they're looking at probably less than 100 students a class, uh, so they'd actually be turning out fewer students there than we'll be turning out with Ross here. Uh, the more slots, the more schools, the better, but unfortunately, I have to admit, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. And I, I would just add that uh, you know, our young lady from Cal State had talked about uh, getting getting down really to the younger, younger generation and trying to promote healthcare careers. And I know that several of the hospitals in the community are very engaged in that, working closely with organizations like the Current Economic Development Corporation. They have a phenomenal mentoring program out at East High uh, that they're trying to get down into 
the lower and lower grades to encourage those folks to stick with it, uh, you know, keep up their grades, they, goal oriented uh, or orientated for them. Uh, so there is that work going on and I think more of that realization is happening in our local market, uh, which is a good thing. It, 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 there's no question that for, on physician recruitment, the number one thing that, that, that we found, at least at San Joaquin, is if they're from Bakersfield, the likelihood that they'll come back is exponentially higher. And so for us to uh, grow our own, if you will, is uh, for us a, a major initiative and something that has to continue for success. Thank you so much, and we will see you at the reception. Thank you. Thank you.